or um, something that's that's coming up that's tough. We would love to pray with you, and you don't have to have gone here for a long time. This can be your first Sunday. Um, just let us know so that we as a staff can pray for you and join you in that. Um, those prayer cards, when you fill them out, can be dropped in our offering boxes, which are along the back walls of the sanctuary. Uh, so you can also drop your offering in there or give online as well. A few upcoming events that we don't want you to miss out. Uh, young adults, we've got um, an annual, or not annual, bi-monthly, we're a lot more frequent than annual, bi-monthly young adult gathering on Friday, September 23rd. And this is going to be a chili cook-off and bonfire, just perfect for fall, really fun. So um, you can register for that online. And our young adults ministry is pretty broad. So you might be in your 20s, your 30s, um, have kids, not have kids, whatever, you know, if that sounds like you, come. It's an awesome group and they do a lot of fun things. Uh, So Friday, September 23rd, mark that on your calendar and you can register uh, online as well. And one more reminder that we are having a membership dinner this evening. So if you've thought about going to membership dinner but haven't um, made the leap, you guys, there's no Chiefs game tonight. So this will be a really good Sunday if you've been like, well, I don't want to go, but we don't want to miss a game, you know. So come, just come. You can still register. We'll have pizza. And there's no obligation to become a member. Like, we don't do that. So we just really tell you what it looks like to become a member, help kind of... um, yeah, help you understand more about the Evangelical Free Church of America, um, and it's a, it's a great conversation. So that's tonight at 5.30, but you do need to register in advance online. And the last thing I'm really excited about, you guys. Okay, so Brookside Campus, this building, it was gifted to us which is the most amazing gift, right? Like, I think if you know how those Lexus commercials have the big bow on top of the car, like, there's like a big bow. Like, it's, you can't see it, but it's on top of this church. It's like the biggest gift ever. So this building was gifted to us. And so we have been in this building for 10 years, and it has been alive with people, and it hadn't been before. So we have so much to celebrate, and we are going to do that on Sunday, October 9th. So the big change, and note this, is there's going to be only one service. So it's only one service at 10 o'clock, worship together with the kids. We're going to be busting at the seams, just be ready for it. But afterward, we're going to have a huge block party. So we're blocking off the street. There's going to be bounce houses and food trucks and face painting. And you can get your family portrait or get some friends together and have a photo done, a professional photo, t-shirts. I mean, all the things, you guys. The only thing I said, we don't have a dunk tank, but we couldn't do that because it's Bill's first Sunday back. And, you know, other campuses have put their pastor in the dunk tank, and that just felt wrong. Like, welcome back from sabbatical we're going to dunk you. So we're not going to do that. We're going to hug him. We're going to welcome him. So it'll be a fun kind of thing on many levels. So just make plans uh, to attend. We're really excited about that. So now that I just got all joust about that, let's transition to the reading of God's word. So please stand with us while Alexis leads us in that. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. This is found on page 977 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me from you, 
how the mystery was made known to my to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rules and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Alexis. Well, good morning. My name is Dakota. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church Brookside Campus, and I'm, I'm really grateful. I'm excited to be here to share God's Word with you. I'm humbled, and um, it's been about uh, a year and a half, just under a year and a half. It'll be a year and a half in December of me being here, and it's just been a joy to get to know so many of you, and if we haven't gotten to know yet, I would love to meet you and get to know you, so please find me afterwards. Um, I'm excited for our text today, for um, this series that we're in in Ephesians. Just an amazing book. There's a lot to cover here, so I'm going to just jump in. Don't mind. Let's, um, let's pray and get started, okay? Lord, we... We want to hear you in your word. And we pause now. Um, as rich and full as this um, passage is, God, we pause here to just ask for you to lead us by your spirit, to open up our hearts, open up our minds. Because um, without you, none of this, is, um, none of this matters, but it's uh, your work through your word in our hearts. So I just pray that you would do that. Um, that we would hear what you want us to hear, learn what you want us to learn, and um, follow you more deeply. God, so help us, lead us today, we pray um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's be real. Parenting is hard. Megan and I had our first son um, in my second year of seminary. And someone recently asked me what it was like to um, be in seminary while also learning how to be a parent. And I told them what I generally tell people, which is that it was great. It was really good for me, actually. Uh, it helped me to be grounded, to be present, to not worry so much about my grades or my academic performance, um, and just be, be there, be with God, be with Megan and my family. And so raising a son while studying theology really did help me keep my values in place. And all of this is true, and it's good, and I'm really grateful uh, for the ways that God allowed us 
to grow our family in seminary. But at the same time, it was really hard. It just was. And it, I'll be totally honest, it is still really hard. We're um, newly pastoring in a new city, and we're building new relationships, and then add on top of that the responsibility of raising children. And all the while, my hope is that we leave them as they go off on their own, that we leave them with something that's worthwhile and valuable to take with them. And that could be like a, a, liter, a literal kind of monetary inheritance or a college fund or something like that. But even more, even more, I hope that they inherit values, character, wisdom, maturity, and a deep faith, a faith that drives them for the rest of our lives, their lives. And, and I hope um, that that's true because as a parent, that's the vision that we live for, right? But when we're in the middle of the struggle, with the late nights, and the diapers, and the bills to keep up with, and the inevitable arguments and tensions that rise with marriage, it's so easy to lose heart. To wonder, in the mess, is it worth it? And this feeling is definitely not restricted to parenting. Just think about anything that you have given so much of your time and effort and money and even identity. Um, it could be a new business. It could be a book that you're writing. It could be a strained relationship. It could be a project at work. And it just feels like it's not paying off. Is it even worth the cost? So we get discouraged. We lose heart. It feels too hard or too painful. And let's be real. This is often how the church feels too, doesn't it? Is it even worth it to do this church thing? Trying to live in community, trying to grow in my faith, we still see so much suffering in the people around me. We still see this part of me it just seems like it won't go away or it won't improve. We still see the public failings of Christian leaders. We still see this broken, divided, racially segregated church. So we lose heart. The grand vision that Paul gave us last week, this vision of this new temple that the Spirit is building on Christ as the cornerstone, that vision begins to leak. The more discouraged we get, the more we lose heart, the more this vision, it twists and it dims. And soon enough, the church begins to look less like a temple where God himself dwells and more like this haphazard lean-to constructed by people who have no idea what they're doing. This is what I've given my life to? Is it worth it? And if we're left there in this discouragement. Deconstructing our faith, or at least our relationship with the church, begins to seem like more and more of a valid option. If we're left there without a worthwhile mission of who the church can be, we have very little motivation to stay and reconstruct something better. So we've been in this series called Reconstructing Faith. 
And so far, Pastor Taylor has led us to see that every faith construction project includes three phases, construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. So there's the initial framework that gets built up made up of bits and pieces that we inherit, um, and that's construction. That happens to all people, no matter what faith, just by the nature of growing up in a particular culture or family or environment. And then, at some point along the way, we come to see that what we've seen as normal gets challenged. It gets challenged from the outside, and in the best circumstances, this leads to deconstructing some level of cultural influence that there's been on our faith. And we begin to see this bigger picture of what our faith could be. And we notice, or someone helps us to see, that there are pieces that don't really fit in with what the gospel actually is, and they have to go. And hear me, to be faithful to Christ, sometimes these pieces have to go. But then, as these problematic pieces go, we need to use that same vision of a bigger picture to begin reconstructing something better in its place. That's the goal, right? Not to end up with our faith on the floor, but to rebuild it according to the plan that God has given his people. And that's why we're spending these 14 weeks in this series in Ephesians. And so in our passage today, Paul, who wrote it, is deconstructing for these Ephesian Gentiles what suffering is and how to see suffering. He's guiding them like a good foreman to reconstruct something better in its place. So here's what Paul is saying. The church is worth suffering for. This comes straight out of Paul's opening line. He says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's pointing to the suffering that he himself is enduring for the sake of the church. But this begs the question, why? Why is the church worth suffering for? And here's Paul's answer. The church is God's treasure. The church is God's treasure. So don't lose heart. So we're going to explore today and how the church, as messy as she is, as messy as we are, how is it that the church is worth suffering for? We're going to see that the church is God's treasure because it enacts God's plan and it displays God's wisdom. So first, the church enacts God's plan for all people. The church enacts God's plan for all people. As we read here in Ephesians 3, this theme of mystery keeps coming up, and it's really strong here. And and what Paul is saying is that this mystery, he's just really plain about it, he says it's that the whole world is Jesus' plan. If you look at verse 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is Gentiles, not just the Jewish people. This is a, the, God's plan from all along. And Paul, who was a Jewish leader, was a Jewish leader, became a follower of Jesus, he understood this mystery earlier than a lot of other people. In Acts 9, we read about how he was knocked on his back, confronted by the risen Christ, 
with this message. He was quite literally overpowered by God to become an evangelist to the Gentiles. And so Paul is here in Ephesians 3 reminding these house churches, they're really little house churches in Ephesus, that this is the mystery. And mystery here really means um, it's, a, it's like a hidden plan that God has always had, right? He's always had, but now it's become visible. And Paul's saying that it's become visible in these tiny, persecuted, little multi-ethnic house churches that are spread throughout the region. Messy as they are, improbable as it seems, they are God's plan. This ragtag group of unlikely friends who are now family in Christ, they are the inheritors of God's eternal plan. And they enact it in their daily lives. This is true of us today. Did you know that you are inheritors of God's secret plan, church? We are his secret plan. And so to give you a picture of this messy, improbable plan, I want to share with you a crazy moment that hits close to home for me, and since it's football season, I want to share with you one of the greatest moments in Cal, my alma mater's, Cal's football history. So watch, watch this. Well, now you guys are not going to remember anything from this morning except for that, which is okay, because I think it's a really great picture. So let's break that down. Cal is at the point of certain defeat, and the opposing fans, Cal's biggest rivals, Stanford, were already storming the field in anticipation of a would-be victory. Right, they were on the field, and then what seemed like out of nowhere, the Cal special teams pulled out a hidden play that defied all expectations. But the play didn't come out of nowhere, right? The coach, at exactly that moment of certain defeats, unveiled the most unlikely, messy plan for victory. The players didn't just kind of haphazardly, coincidentally start throwing the ball around. That was the plan, to win in the most unexpected, messy way. So I want to suggest to you today that the church is kind of like that crazy final play, that it's unexpected and it's messy, but it is the way that God has chosen to enact his plan on earth. Friends, Christ has won it. Because of the cross and resurrection, there will be no extra point for sin or evil or death or division because the way of the cross is the way of victory. This was the plan hidden for ages and past that are, that's now enacted in the church with Christ as our head coach. The church is his beautiful messy, winning team. But how? Paul goes on. Read with me verses 8 and 9. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So the church enacts the good news by being a community for all peoples. 
We talked about this a lot last week. Paul is building on his last point, highlighting that this diverse church made up of Jews and Gentiles becomes the good news proclaimed to the world. The most surprising groups of people come together to be one, and the message of salvation is reenacted in every age and generation and cultural climate and divide. This has been God's plan all along. That's why the Gentiles are fellow heirs, because the church is God's treasure that he has given to each member as an inheritance. God's plan is radically inclusive and radically generous because the goodness of the group gathered together is the gift. So this is one of the ways that the church is God's treasure. She's a gift given to um, each person and for the good of all peoples, even in the beautiful mess that she is. So this has been God's plan. He's been making humans one diverse people ever since he started. Right back in Genesis 2, he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he's been bringing humans together into this one flesh ever since, and now he's united himself with humanity, and then he's taken her embodied in the church to be his bride. And Jesus' death-embracing pursuit of us as his bride took him to the cross as our sacrificial lamb, and one day at the wedding supper of the lamb, as we know from Revelation 7 and chapters 19, the people from all possible ethnic groups will be there together, sitting at one table, enjoying our bridegroom forever. This will be the embodied, the tangible experience of what Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, verse 7, back a couple weeks ago. That in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that's one way the church is God's treasure. We enact God's plan from eternity to welcome all peoples into the family. But there's more. So another way that the church, messy as we are, our God's treasure is that we display God's wisdom. The church displays God's wisdom to the watching universe. And so as Paul continues, he expands our imagination beyond what most of us are willing to go or dare to go. Listen, verse 10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The whole universe, the entire created world, both seen and unseen, is watching this unfolding mystery of God's treasure, the church. And in fact, Paul says that even, or even especially, it's the angels. Yes, angels, spirits, demons, what Paul calls the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's the angels who are watching the church to glimpse God at work. The beings who dwell in the spiritual realm are spectators in the amphitheater of God's providence and in God's infinite wisdom. He decided that the regular, ordinary 
messy lives of earthlings turned divine image bearers would be how he showcases his glory. This has got to make us wonder how God's values are different from what we tend to think is valuable. Right? We look at Christian celebrities, whether they're um, megachurch pastors or they're really prolific writers or speakers or whatever, and much like the rest of the world looks at their own celebrities, we measure our sense of what is valuable, what is important, what is impactful in God's kingdom based on how our own efforts stack up to theirs that we see. And it never measures up. So we look at our lives and we don't have as many social media followers or likes. We don't have as many people in the Bible study that we lead or our family isn't the clean-cut picture that we see on Instagram. We don't have a deep prayer life. And the people that we are praying for just aren't coming to faith. So in the words of Walter Mitty, we look at our lives and there's nothing noteworthy or mentionable to speak of. And yet, there are faithful Christians in little, invisible, regular churches all over the world doing the real, messy work of loving God, one another, and their neighbor. Friends, what a celebrity pastor does in a lifetime, however remarkable or praiseworthy it is, is a drop in the ocean of what God is doing through regular, invisible churches no one ever hears or sees. God sees. The unseen realm sees. The spiritual beings who dwell in heaven look in with longing at what God is doing through the church on earth. Because you see, there's an invisible war that's been going on for glory, for honor, and for worship, and the battles over humanity have been waging since very near the beginning, right? Alongside God's story, his grand plan of redemption, there's been a counter story, an opposition force. This is what we call today spiritual warfare. And the epicenter of the conflict is not as unexpectedly as it seems the world, but it's the church. in Genesis 3, we read back there that the, the crafty serpent comes and he sows lies into the first human's minds and then this leads them to exchange the glory of their creator for the glory of created things. And even though they already had the glory of God because they were made in his image. So when God finds out that um, this is what the serpent did, he curses it and he says its descendants or its seed will always be at war with the woman's descendants till one day a seed from her lineage, a human, will crush the serpent's head. And so the Garden of Eden, literally the orchard of delights, is lost. And we all know the human story from then on becomes one of pain and conflict and division driven by the hubris of pride. And this is a side note, friends. The spiritual beings who are opposed to God and opposed to God's reign are greedy to produce this pride in you. 
just like the serpent was. So then as the story continues, God became a human to redeem humanity on, on the cross, right? And to bring them back into his fold. And the apparent defeat turned out to be a victory. God's judgment on the serpent came to pass, just as he had said, and it was the beautiful mess of the cross. That's what defeated the evil forces, because they couldn't see it coming. And so the church is the center of the unseen conflict. Not because the church is vulnerable or in danger, but actually just the opposite. The church is the center of spiritual power because in Christ we have access to God. We have access to God himself. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul continues, he says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access to God, to God with boldness and confidence because Christ's power has defeated sin and death and the evil spirits that seek to dominate hearts and nations. So where does this confident access come from? We can read about, actually, the passage that we're reading today is saturated with language from the first chapter of Ephesians. So we're going to look at that, the end of that chapter again. Just read with me. Here's what he says. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Notice Paul mentions the same words as in 3 verse 10, but they're just singular. So our boldness comes from Christ's power over death and over every spiritual power in the universe. And this power comes from Christ crucified and risen to make us members of his body on earth. And now we as the church, as Christ's body on earth, take on the same mission to display God's wisdom through the beautiful, messy way of the cross. So when these unseen beings see the church, what do they see? The manifold wisdom of God, Paul says. Really? us? God's wisdom is displayed through messy people and only through messy people. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 to another messy church that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The church displays God's wisdom even if we look foolish, even if it makes no sense at all. And in fact, it's this messy foolishness that makes the church an increasing reflection of God's glory because it's manifested supremely in his son on the cross. So when we follow Christ in the way of the cross, we're putting on display the manifold wisdom of God. 
and we portray more truly the work of art that we already are. So manifold here means that like many-sided, complex, multicolored, multifaceted. It's like a diamond that's intricately cut and it's glittering with the whole spectrum of light. We are God's magnum opus. Beethoven's fifth, his masterpiece, the Sistine Chapel. He's, and, and it's not, hear me, and it's not the big, flashy things that we do for God. But the upside-down way of the kingdom, it is the ordinary, messy acts of ordinary, messy life through which God most reveals himself. So remember, don't be led away by the celebrity, celebrity again, right? It's all of the things that we do as a church, the little things, the things that seem insignificant, that add up to demonstrate God's wisdom. This is actually where the great power of being a church for Monday comes in. Because just imagine a scattered church on Monday unleashed to do regular, ordinary things to the glory of God. The spiritual beings in the heavenly places look on this and are in awe. So what little ordinary things um, and ways of being the church are you tempted, are you prone to write off as insignificant? Maybe grabbing coffee with a new person you meet. Sharing a meal as a community group. Listening to someone's story. Praying for someone. Changing diapers. Sharing your life with a coworker. Visiting someone who's lost a spouse. Remembering names. How might it change how you see these apparently insignificant things? If you knew that angels we're looking on and longing to get to be a part of the gospel story that we get to be a part of. So the church is God's treasure because we enact God's plan and because we display God's wisdom by being a community that embraces the messy way of the cross. So that's why even in the mess, the church is worth suffering for. So don't lose heart. This is where Paul lands. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So when he says suffering here, Paul is talking about suffering for the Gentiles, right? He's suffering for the sake of all people to know and follow Jesus. This is why Paul was in prison, probably in Rome, and the rulers of the earth possibly influenced by the spiritual rulers in the heavenly places, looked like they had won. That's the whole reason Paul gives this vision of the church as God's treasure. Because the little Ephesian churches, facing the threat of imprisonment themselves, looked at Paul and thought, is being the church really worth it? New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick describes this tension Well, listen to what she writes. She says, After 2,000 years of Christian reflection, we take for granted Paul's imprisonment. But in his own lifetime, the physical violence he endured, as well as the social shame that attended his missional activities, led some within 
the ecclesial church community to distance themselves from him. His imprisonment puts at risk any credibility he might have had with the Ephesians. So Paul explains God's triumph in Christ through the reality of human weakness. Weakness is the way. This is the only way we go forward in our mission as a church. It was never by conquering or dominating or controlling others. What did Jesus say? In Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, and the cost inherently necessarily bears itself out in the cost of being the church together. And Paul tells the Ephesians that this suffering is their glory. It's actually part of their inheritance as the church. God's victory comes through weakness, through suffering on behalf of others. This is the vision that we need to rebuild something better when we feel like we're losing heart. Because being the church is worth it. Because no matter how messy, how chaotic, how foolish, how crazy it seems, we're God's plan for working in the world and displaying his wisdom and glory. This is how we don't lose heart. As we live out our calling to be in deep community with one another, we take hold of the fullness of being God's children. But we must be the church to experience God's treasure for us. So how do we do this? Well, Paul already gave us a picture of being the church of all peoples last week, and he's going to expand it even more next week. But this week, here's what we need to hear. We are the church only insofar as we suffer alongside one another. We are the church only insofar as we suffer alongside one another. We dive into the depth of suffering for others and with others. We don't hesitate to name the suffering that we might have inflicted, that someone else might have inflicted. It's painful. But that's where the real joy is, the real gift of actually experiencing Jesus through forgiveness, through caring for a brother or sister in their grief, sharing the burdens of lament and injustice. This is how we see God's wisdom at work. And then we get to enact it in our regular messy lives. This is how we help each other see and lean into the way of Jesus. So love the church like Jesus does. It will cost you. It definitely will not always make sense, but this is how God works. It's worth it. Eternally, gloriously worth it. Just look at the cross. You don't get the empty tomb without it. So when our friends or family or fellow church members are losing heart, with being the church, having doubts about whether the church is worth it, it may very well be that if we follow Paul's example, it is our suffering, 
our vulnerable weakness on their behalf that convinces them that it's worth it to stay and to rebuild something better. A few weeks back, we got to hear reports from our friend, Gitachu, our global outreach partner in Kenya. And it was just so life-giving because the church in Kenya is being the church by suffering for the good of their Muslim neighbors. God's at work. It's exciting. And what Gitachu and faithful missionaries the world over are doing is not all that different from what you all are already prepared to do every day. Be the body of Jesus in your Monday lives. Love people in the beautiful, messy, ordinary way of Jesus. And as you do, people will see and they'll want to experience for themselves God's treasure in the church. So don't lose heart. It's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, I come to you just um, feeling the weight, feeling the, the burden that, um, God, we cannot be the church. We cannot live into this vision unless you work in our lives, unless you are empowering us by your spirit because you have died for us and rose again for us, Jesus. God, we need you. We need you to lean into this messy way of the cross, knowing that you have gone before us. You have taken our sin, and you have called us into your family to be the church together. God, we pray that you'd help us to do that, help us to have the strength and the courage um, to move forward in that together. God, knowing that it is messy, and sometimes it feels really messy. But you are the head of our church. You are our leader. You are the one who has um, done all things to save us from our sin, to bring us into the fold. So help us do that in our regular lives. Help us to... um, even just to recognize that you are present there in the mess. And Spirit, lead us to have our vision, have our sight um, renewed and restored to see the ways that you're already at work in our lives. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, for this time, for your church, for these people gathered in your room, in this room, for your glory. Um, Thank you, Lord. pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.